Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Off the Record. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. Over the course of these interviews, I've been lucky enough to speak with those who grew up with David Bowie, performed with David Bowie, recorded with David Bowie, and some who were even romantically involved with David. Now, finally, at long last, we're getting a fan's perspective. But not just any fan. Now, I should say, I don't believe in quantifying people's passion for their favorite musicians. I think we all love artists differently, and no one way is better than another. But if I did believe in the title of Bowie's number one fan, Patty Brett would pretty much be at the top of the list of contenders. I want you to take a mental journey with me for a moment. Imagine you're in high school and your all-time favorite artist comes to your town and invites you into the studio to get your thoughts on their latest batch of songs. Seems like a fantasy, right? some sort of fan fiction. But that's exactly what happened to Patty back in August of 1974. She was part of a group of devoted teens who kept vigil outside of Philadelphia's Sigma Sound Studios. For nearly two weeks, Bowie worked through the night at the Philly Soul Song Factory, exploring the bounds of funk and R&B with a titanic team of musicians, including the incomparable Carlos Alomar, Robin Clark, and a young Luther Vandross. Rain or shine, these kids waited on the hard cement in an alley just off a of skid row, holding court until Bowie left at dawn. Why? Well, just to be there. If you're a certain kind of fan, you get it. If not, there's nothing I can say that can explain it. Just trust me. David became friendly with these diehards who were there to welcome him each day and send him off each night. He'd stop the chat and hang out. Then one night, he had a special thank you for their dedication private listening session for his album in progress, which would become Young Americans. Patty was one of David's chosen few, the group he would come to dub the Sigma Kids. In the decades since, her love for David has only grown. Since 2016, Patty has shared her passion through the Philly Loves Bowie Week extravaganza, which she spearheads every January in her hometown. She's also the proprietor of Doobie's Bar, a Philly institution that's home to perhaps the greatest jukebox in the city of brotherly love. 
I have to say, after working on this season of Off the Record for the better part of a year, there are times when I get a little tired of all things Starman. But Patty's enthusiasm is absolutely contagious and completely reinvigorated me. Her story appeals to the daydreaming fan in all of us. Because, hey, this time the fantasy actually came true. I'm so grateful to Patty for sharing her story. I hope you get as much joy from it as I did. The way that, that you feel about, about Bowie, I assume, is how I feel about the Beatles. I have a piece of John Lennon's carpet framed above my desk right now as we really? speak. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't something I sought out, but once it was given to me, I thought, well, I have to, you know, treat this well. Uh, yeah. I, I So I... You know, even if it's it's not for Bowie specifically, I understand that level of passion and devotion. And mm-hmm. I mean, the Beatles are responsible for every creative impulse I've ever had. They're responsible for my entire career. They just, I mean, you know, so I, 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 I get that. So I, I, I'm so excited to talk to you about that. Somebody who feels that strongly about someone else too. And that, that's really why I'm, I'm most thrilled to talk to you is just, I want that passion. And I, I love that. It makes, it just makes me feel good. It makes me feel good to, to talk to people who are that passionate about <laughs> something so beautiful, you know? It's it's so funny because so many people don't understand it. My girlfriend just, she says, I've never seen anyone be as passionate about a singer as you are about him. You know, I discovered him when I was 17 and I'm 65. So he's he's been my whole life. He's been there. How, so. how did this begin for you? What was your first experience with his music? What got you hooked? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a funny story. Um, so I had heard Space Oddity. I'd heard Changes. It didn't ring a bell for me. I knew of the songs, connect them with David Bowie. That just, it. I didn't connect it with David Bowie. And unfortunately, I can't really tell you who it was at the time that I did connect with because quite honestly, Prior to him, I just don't remember musically. I mean, I remember things that I liked growing up. I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, you know? Oh, yeah. And I loved the Beatles. Um, And I was lucky. My mom was 19 when she had me. So we weren't that far apart age-wise. And she loved music. She gave me my love of music. When I was a little girl, we just listened to all kinds of things, show tunes, country music, R&B, pop. So what happened was um, my senior year in high school, which was 1972, I graduated in a class of a thousand. So parking on campus was at a premium. (laughs) So they held a lottery every year and they would pick a hundred seniors that would get a parking space on the school property. And I want a spot. So, of course, everyone wanted to ride to and from school with me. Um, I had, so it was 1972, I had a 63 Cadillac Sedan DeVille. Yes. Oh, man. (laughs) With the fins. Oh, yeah. Got the fuzzy dice, too. uh, No, no fuzzy dice. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people in the trunk of the car when we would go to the drive-in. That's a big trunk. um, Oh my God, that car was, I could fit 10, 10 of my friends in there and it's in the boat. car. Yes. Um, so one day we were coming home from school and a song came on the radio and one of the people in the car screamed 
put the windows up. Don't let any of the sound out. And I said, what? They said, it's David Bowie. It's like, okay. So we put the windows up and it was memory of a free festival. And by the end of the song, uh, he had charmed me enough to look into him further. Um, and then I discovered Ziggy because it had just come out. So um, that kind of did it. Ziggy came out. Um, he came to the tower for the Ziggy tour in December of 72. Uh, I saw that show and yeah, that was, that was it for me. <laughs> Wherever he was going, I was going. <laughs> it's funny. I've been, I've been watching a lot of the wonder years lately. So my mind's been back in sort of seventies high schools. Mm-hmm. What did it mean to be a David Bowie fan at your school? Was oh, he, was he was, pretty universally incredib- loved? No, it was incredibly difficult. Really? Um, yes. It was, uh, so the majority of the kids that went to my school were all into the dead. Mm, okay. And it was, you know, they had that flannel shirt, jeans, and army jacket uniform. And uh, I started wearing my grandmother's dresses from the 40s and platforms, and I hennaed my hair. That's <laughs> so awesome. everybody at school called me a freak. <laughs> Which I... <laughs> Wore that title proudly. I was going to say, yeah. Yep, wore it proudly because it was I was a Bowie freak, and that meant something to me. So, um, yeah, so I got tortured in high school about it. There were uh, a few other people in my school that liked Bowie. We sought each other out, especially after the show, after he played at the Tower. We found each other very quickly. You know, he was so different from anything that I had encountered and that most people had encountered at that point that uh, I loved not being in a group with everyone else. I loved being an outsider. Yeah. That was what I was so, going to ask you what he activated within you. Like what, what, what he, what, what he brought to you and made you see within yourself. Well, I think you know, at at that age, it's still difficult being in high school. It's still, mm. you know, there's there are all those people that like to bully. And I think for me, because he was so willing to be so different that I said, I can do that too. I don't have to listen to everybody else. I don't have to be like everybody else. I can be my own person and you know, I can like what I like. I don't have to like what everyone else likes. And that's when I discovered things like T-Rex and the whole glam movement. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it sounds like you had a really great community of, of friends who, who were into the same music that you were into, like like Bowie. I mean, how did you first find out that he was going to be recording in, in, in Philly at Sigma? So he played seven shows at the, well, he was scheduled for seven shows at the Tower uh, in July of 74 for the Diamond Dogs tour. He wound up canceling the Saturday matinee show because that's when the band found out that they were recording uh. for David Law. Or I guess they found out the day before and were arguing about the rate they were being paid on Saturday. So they had canceled the matinee show. But what happened is we would, after the show was over, we knew where he was staying because back then, 
you could call hotels and say, yeah, is David Bowie there? And they'd say, yeah. <laughs> Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yep. Not even yeah. like a fake name. They just, oh, nope. yeah. No, not back then. Good publicity for that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. So. <laughs> wow. Yes. Yeah, so we knew where he was staying. And actually, he had stayed at the Bellevue when he was here in February 73. So he stayed at the Bellevue and we would leave the show, drive straight to the hotel, and he would sit out on the steps and chat with us at night. Wow. So one of the nights that he was out there, he told us, I'm going to be recording a new album here in Philadelphia in about a month at Sigma Sound Studio. Come look for me. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that explains so, everything. Because I was going to ask you, like, why? what made you want to, like, sit there? And then it's, oh, of course. If, if, if David Bowie says, come look for me, I would follow him exactly. wherever he was. Exactly. Yep. What did, you, what so, did the next month for you like? What? How did you? How did you function on the next month? Like, like I'm, well, so, I'm, I'm sort of serious. Like that's incredible. Yeah, um, you know, who who actually knows if he's really going to right. do this? Yeah. But we started. You know, we're talking about August of '74. There are no cell phones. There's no internet. Um, there are us in our cars <laughs> and our telephones at home. And uh, we just started staking out the studio. And one night, a friend of mine called me at home and said his car's outside because we knew his car from seeing it at the Bellevue. Um, and so we went down that night and we didn't see him that night. And uh, we went back the next day. And I don't remember, unfortunately, it's just, too many years ago. I don't remember if we caught him going into the studio or we caught him coming out, but um, the car was outside again. And if I was there and missed him going in, I can guarantee you I was not leaving until he came out. <laughs> so, and what would happen was when he was at Sigma, the first night that we saw him we followed him back to his hotel we followed the car back to the hotel and he was staying at the barclay hotel this time and um he would have this routine where he would come out of the hotel usually around four o'clock in the afternoon chat with people that were waiting up because there were always people waiting for him uh sign autographs take photographs he'd get in his car and he'd head to the studio so the Hotel was at 18th on Rittenhouse Square, uh, just off of Walnut Street. And the studio was at on 12th Street between Vine and Race. So it was, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 blocks away. And uh, we would jump in our cars, run every red light to the studio, <laughs> pull up outside. He'd pull up. We'd all be, and there would be people waiting at the studio as well. We'd jump out of our cars, same routine, chat with everybody, sign autographs, um, take photos, go into the studio. Then he would be in the studio for hours. He would usually come out uh, four in the morning, late, three, four, five in the morning. And we would <laughs> get in our cars, race back to the hotel. <laughs> And do the same thing. So it it that just happened every day. Um, and because that was happening, we were seeing the band go in and out. 
and we got to be friendly with Carlos and Robin and Luther. Um, and they, by the end of them recording at Sigma, Carlos was taking Leslie's camera into the studio and taking pictures of David while he was, while he was recording. Carlos and Robin would invite us. They would have everything on cassette that they had laid down that night. And Carlos would always have a tape of it and say, come up to the room. We'll play you what we recorded. Oh, my God. At, at, at the Barclays? Yeah. So we'd go up to Carlos and Robin's room and sit around and listen to it. Um, and, you know, everything, It none of it really made sense to us because a lot of what he had, um, as far as I can recall, was him. You know, his his isolated guitar work mm. or Robin's you know, or the backing vocals for the, for the singers. Um, and, you know, there'd be, there would be other things in there, but I don't remember any of it specifically. And, <clears throat> and so uh, I think Carlos was the one that convinced David that he should let us up into the studio to listen to it. And uh, the night that he told us about it, he went into the studio and he said, if you guys are out here when I come out, I have a surprise. I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> I was going to say, you're chaining yourself uh, yep. to the, so the, yep. the lamppost. I'll sit here all night in the middle of Skid Row, no problem, right on the sidewalk. <laughs> and uh, when he came out, he said, we really appreciate everything that you've done. Because we were driving them places. We took his Stuart, his bodyguard, we took him record shopping. Uh, we were running errands for them. So um, David said, you know, I really appreciate everything that you've done. Um, you've, you've all been so supportive that I would like for you to come up into the studio and listen to what we've done because I'd like to get some feedback. He said, but you can't tell anybody. It's just the people that are right here right now. Because you were the, the, the devotees, he, said, he knew you. Keep it under your hat. No, there were. I mean, there were. A, there were loads of people that were there all the time. It just, you know, there were people that shifted in and out because they had jobs, or, you know, we were all really young. A lot of a lot of the people that were there had curfews, you mm. know. So, yes. Yeah, so while I can't really say that any of the ones of us that got into the studio were any more dedicated or devoted than some of the ones that didn't get into the studio. But we just happened to be in the right place at the right time. So um, he let us know the day before, said it's going to be tomorrow. Um, and we, so always coming and going at the studio, all these people, we're all dressed up this night. <laughs> and everybody's saying, why are you guys so dressed up? I'm not lying. This was Skid Row. Soup kitchens, winos, uh, derelicts, sleeping on the street. It was, yeah, not a place you would want your 16, 17, 18-year-old child hanging out at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> what did but, you um, wear? I, uh, I have to send you a picture. Please do. Um, I'm actually surprised you haven't ever seen it. It's such a great photograph. So he hired a photographer to document it. Um, it her name is Dagmar, and she is the one who did the cover for David Live. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So she was at the studio. She took photographs outside before we got in. Um, but the thing was, there were all these people there that night um, because that's how it always went. And we had to get rid of them because <laughs> he said it was just us. So, you know, we just told, oh, we just felt like getting dressed up tonight. You know, you know, he's not coming out until probably five o'clock in the morning. There's no point in you sitting here and waiting. You should all go home. <laughs> and we got them all to leave. There were there might have been one or two that got in that that just happened to not leave and got in. Um, yeah, you got to do what uh, you got to do. Exactly. But, um, yep, so uh, it started to rain a little bit, and he had Coco let us into the lobby of the studio so we wouldn't get wet. Because he always would make sure we had food, oh. we had a way home. You know, does anybody need money to get home? He was, yes. Um, so he had Coco let us into the lobby, and at some point, and I don't recall what time it was, somebody came downstairs and got us and took us upstairs. And he was behind the glass, and we went into the studio. And he spoke to us from behind the glass and said, everything's really raw. We just finished it. It needs to be mixed. It needs this. It needs this. It needs this. But listen to it and let me know what you think. And with that, he came out and sat down all the way in the back of the studio. I'll send you the pictures that I have. Um, sat all the way in the back of the studio, uh, chewing on his nails and rocking back and forth and you know, watching everyone's reactions. And after it played the first time, one of the girls that was in the studio, Lenny, jumped up and screamed, play it again. <laughs> and he said, really? And everyone screamed, yes. And they played it again. And he got up and danced with everyone and chatted and we took pictures. And that's pretty much the story of Sigma. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting genuinely emotional and choked up hearing this because I, I putting this in my own context for the Beatles or something like I, I just, I can't imagine what that, what that yeah. must've felt like, what that must've been like, what that must've done for you at any age, but especially at that age, at such a formative age. I mean, what, how did you, how did you leave that day? Like, what was, what did you do immediately after that? Like, I can't even think of like, like, you must've been too excited to go to sleep even though you've been up all night. Uh, probably. And honestly, <laughs> I don't recall. Um, I had a job at the time. I was, um, I was working at, uh, the courthouse in media, the county seat in the county I lived in, um, as a bookkeeper. So I don't, I honestly don't recall if I went to work that day or not, but I know that we went back down to the hotel because they were leaving. Uh, we went back down to the hotel that afternoon to say goodbye to everybody. And you got to say goodbye to David too? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, yep. And he took the, he had Coco take down all of us that were in the studio. He had her take down everyone's name and address. And he said the next time he was in town, he would make sure that we got tickets for the show. Oh. And we, of course, you know, when tickets went on sale, we camped out. Because we had to be in the front. <laughs> yeah. This would have been 76? 
This would have been 74. No, he oh, came so, back oh, in November right. of 74. It was the latter part of the Diamond Dogs tour, but they called it the Philly Soul Tour, you know, or Philly Dogs. With the strip they down. It. Yes. The theatrics were all gone. Um, he had Carlos in the band and Robin and Ava and Jeff McCormick were doing backup along with uh, Diane Sumler and, oh God, Anthony Hinton and Luther. And so what happened was Luther, the backup singers, pardon me, and the band opened the show on that portion of the tour. And then David came out and then they just stayed on stage. But um, we camped out for the tickets. We got seats in the front. At that point, he had moved from the Tower Theater, which is about a 3,300 seat venue, to the Spectrum, which was comparable to Madison Square Garden. And I worked at the Tower. So when I worked at the Tower, I had just gotten that job. That was my dream job, working concerts. I was an usher in the theater. And uh, they called me up. We had camped out for the Diamond Dogs tickets. And uh, they called me up and said, what Bowie shows can you work? I said, you can't work any Bowie shows. That front row in the pit. (laughs) (laughs) And Peter, my boss, said, you either work or you don't have a job here anymore. Everybody has to work these shows because they're sold out. And I got upset because I didn't want to lose that job, Mm. but I wasn't giving up my front row pit seats. And um, he said, you know, I'll call you a week before the show. Let me know what you want to do. And uh, I had my mom had a friend that was a nurse, and she brought home stuff to put a cast on my leg. Oh my so, god! Yep. So I got out of work in the shows, but I had to go with cast. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, we do some silly things more dedicated, don't we? I was going to say, "Love makes you do foolish things," <laughs> as the song goes. Wow. Uh huh. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So I got to keep my job, and I got my front row pit seats. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I mean, I was going to ask, I mean, back when, when you were first hearing the music in, in Sigma and then also at the concert, what did you think of this this change in direction, this sort of Philly soul-influenced Bowie? A huge change from, from Ziggy and Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs. What did you think of it? Um, we thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't think there was anybody there that didn't love what we were hearing. And I think a big part of it is because because we were hearing it prior to being in the studio, you know, Carlos playing us tapes and we would there was an engineer on that album named Carl and there was a window up on the second floor in the behind the glass um, and we used to convince Carl to open the window up for us (laughs) (laughs) so we'd stand outside and we'd we'd be able to hear it and it was yeah and you know I think a big part of it too is growing up in Philly and and having the Philly sound be a part of our of who we all were as kids. Yeah, that was um, yours. Yeah. Yep. And I know that a lot of the musicians from Sigma, the the session musicians and studio musicians, didn't appreciate his wanting to come here. They felt like he was stealing their sound. And that's why there's only one person from MFSB um that wound up playing on Young Americans, that was Larry Washington. And that's why he had to hire the band that he hired. And thank goodness for Carlos, because Carlos put everything together for him. Carlos was so instrumental in making Young Americans happen. I know that David had an idea of what he wanted to do, but I really, truly believe that if it weren't for his association with Carlos and him meeting Carlos and then... Carlos having Robin and Luther come down to Philly because they weren't supposed to be singing backup initially. It was Carlos was coming to play guitar and Robin came down because Robin's Carlos's wife and Luther's their best friend. So they came down to sit in on the sessions and, you know, they're just in the studio 
the first day or two singing things on their own, just sort of going with the music. David heard them, and the rest is pretty much history, you know? He he had Luther arrange so much of that, and if it weren't for Carlos, that wouldn't have happened. I don't know what that album would be had it not been for Carlos. Oh, it's hard to imagine. I mean, without his guitar and without those backing vocals, it's just, yeah. I, I love the footage from, I think it was in Cracked Actor, when, when you could see them working out how, how yeah. they arrange it. I mean, it's just so intricate and, and so yep. gorgeous. And then there are those tapes that um, when Sigma closed down, they took all the tapes that they had in their possession, things that had been left behind, um, and donated them to Drexel University. And uh, the guy that's in charge of those tapes, Toby Say, C, sorry, Toby C, allows people. So one of the reels is Bowie at for Young Americans, and uh, he allows people to go into Drexel and plays it for them. And not only does he have that one, he's got another tape that's actually really long. I want to say it's over an hour of the backup singers working stuff out with just them working things out. And you can hear David giving them direction and them changing things. And it's, it's fascinating. Um, I was fortunate enough. I want to say about two years ago to finally get in there. Cause I've worked with Toby cause I started Philly loves Bowie week. Um, in 2017 was our first run. Um, and uh, we had Toby come out and play things for people at some of our events. So, and I kept saying, I'll get in there, I'll get in there, I'll get in there. And finally I got in there and it was, it was well worth the wait. It was very emotional. I was going to say. I mean, there were, there were, you know, what happened with Young Americans was he wound up with what he had. He came back in November for those shows at the Spectrum. And he played two separate shows. One was the 18th and one was, I believe, the 25th. So he was in town that time recording again at at Sigma. And that's when he recorded um, the Bruce Springsteen songs, Saint in the City and uh, Growing Up. And Bruce came down from New York to the studio to meet with David. And I was was the only person that knew who he was. (laughs) At the time, I loved Bruce Springsteen. I saw him for my 18th birthday. Wow, where'd you at see this, him? At this place that I told you about, the main point, this little coffee house oh out my God. in. Yep. Uh, Wild Innocent in the East Street Shuffle had just come out. Yeah. So uh, Bruce came down and um, was in the studio while David was recording. And, um, and then we all know what happened. Then David went and did whatever, you know, finished the tour, went up to New York, met up with John Lennon. Recorded Fame and Across the Universe, knocked off Who Can I Be Now, and um, It's Gonna Be Me, and uh, and I've hated fame ever since. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted those other songs to be on it. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like how I feel about with Pet Sounds with Sloop John B. on there. It was like edged on. As, it, it doesn't really fit with the rest of the album. It's the single, but it doesn't really. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I've never, and I, I like the music in it, 
And I know Carlos was a big part of that. But boy, I do not like that song. Don't like it. I used to, when he would um, perform it, I would turn my back to him. <laughs> to show my to show my disapproval. <laughs> I just remember we were at um Snug Harbor on Staten Island on the marathon tour in I guess 2002 and my friend Hal, he started doing fame and I turned my back and my friend Helen hit me and, and said he, he's watching you. I said good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well th- this begs the question how many times have you seen Bowie? I stopped counting once I got to 100 shows, Amazing. which was Roseland in 96, Ooh. September of 96. Oh, wow. um, and then I saw him probably about 50 more times. So I've seen him roughly 150. I know, I mean, compared to United Sigma, I, I, it must be hard for anything else to compare. But is there one that shines through as your definitive Bowie Live moment? Oh, yeah, the first time I saw him. That it always, makes sense. always, always, always will be that Ziggy show. Always my favorite <sighs> show. Oh my God. Yep. Yeah. I just, I sat and I unfortunately had horrible seats. I was in the upper balcony and uh, I just, he had, um, he played three nights. I had tickets for the middle show. So he played Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, the, night before he started his run there, Matza Hoople played at the tower and he took a taxi from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia to introduce them because it was David Bowie presents Matza Hoople. And um, he came out on stage and, and I was at the show. He came out on stage and introduced them. And then he came out and sang um, all the young dudes and a stone song. Uh, honky tonk woman maybe uh, with them for the encore and so that was actually the real first time I ever saw him but he was singing back up so but yeah he so I didn't have tickets the show sold out immediately I didn't have tickets the first night I went the second night I tried to because I only lived three blocks away um, for the third show I went down there and tried to get a ticket outside and couldn't so I just stood outside the theater and listened but, you know, sitting in the upper balcony, he walked out on that stage, my jaw dropped, and I just sat in awe the whole rest of the show and probably cried a lot. <laughs> I used to cry a lot when I saw him in the beginning. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. 
Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late everyone, there was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever get to meet David again after those days at Sigma? Oh, yeah. I saw him, saw him through the years. Not anything private, but, um, you know, we uh, followed the Station to Station tour for 12 shows up along the, on the Northeast car. We saw him at Boston Garden. Um, <laughs> um, we went to, in Buffalo, he actually, we stayed at all the same hotels, because Carlos would give us the right to <laughs> <laughs> a good um, friend, Carlos. Carlos and Robin are such an amazing couple. But, um, yeah, Carlos would give us the itinerary, and we stayed at all the same hotels. So when we were in Buffalo, he actually came down to the hotel bar and sat with us for the night. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, we'd see him places uh, – when he would play in Philadelphia, we would catch up with him at the bar. And then on the outside tour, Carlos was playing with Bowie again. And we had gone up to Hershey, which was, I don't remember, several days ahead of Philadelphia. And uh, we ran into Carlos after the show. Oh, he, he said, we're coming to Philadelphia a day early. Get everyone together at your bar. We're going to hang out. Oh. So... Yeah, so um, 
Carlos came to Doobies the night before the show, and everybody started complaining. David never talks to us anymore. We never see David, blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, things changed from the 70s. Once, um, once John Lennon was murdered, uh, his security got really tight. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't fans and devotees uh, following their, I don't want to say idol, but following their... Their passion. Yes. <laughs> um but, you know, at that point, it became stalking. Yeah. And while I can guarantee if anybody ever tried to hurt him, we would have killed them. We would have killed them. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're the best yes. security that there ever was. <laughs> right? It's like, no, 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 that's not happening. But, yeah, he uh, – things got very different. And, you know, he his career was took off, and he was huge. And so in – my bar that night, um, Carlos said, all right, I'll tell you what, we have to go to Pittsburgh after the show tomorrow night, but I'm going to get you guys backstage passes and we'll have a little um, reunion. And we got to the show. He said, you know who, you know who deserves passes. So just make sure that everybody that deserves one gets one. And we went to the show the next night and Carlos, Carlos had given us 20 backstage passes. Oh my God. And, after the show was over, we went and waited at the backstage door, and they said, you know, he wants to get changed, and it'll be a little while. You're just going to have to wait here. Okay, fine. And uh, I don't know how long it was, 40, 45 minutes. The door opens up, and there's David standing at the backstage door greeting everybody, <laughs> greeting everybody and uh, shaking hands, kissing, hugging, and uh, we this is so funny. We got backstage and we're talking and he looked at everybody and there are people there with their kids. And he said, oh, gosh, it's so great to see everybody. But you guys look old. And he <laughs> runs his hands through his hair and he says, I look fabulous. <laughs> and he had this little tiny goatee little tiny chin hair, not even a real goatee. And I rubbed it and I said, I don't know, you're looking a little gray to me. <laughs> <laughs> he must have loved that. Uh well we had a we did have a good laugh. Oh. And um we were back there, his you know, his handler kept saying, Come on, we have to go, come on, we have to go. And he kept saying, No, I'm not ready yet. No, no, no. And finally, um finally he said, We really we have to get on the bus now. And David said Okay, but not without pictures. And so we took a bunch of photos of all of us together, and then off he went. So he went to Pittsburgh. I don't remember what was after that. I think they had a day off, and then maybe another show somewhere. And then he was in Manassas at the Nissan Pavilion, and we went to that show, and Carlos gave us passes and we went backstage and he had died. He died that little bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> he listened. But I personally was very thankful that uh, while we didn't have a close, like 
we didn't have any kind of a close relationship. He would recognize me places. He, I can guarantee you, if he saw me, he would not say, oh, there's Patty. Um, but he always recognized us. Um, and I'm very happy that it got to the point where I felt comfortable enough joking with him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That always, when I got to that point where it, where I just wasn't standing there awestruck, which is the first time I ever met him. I just, I didn't even know how to get words out of my mouth in 73. Uh, you were great. The, was this at the Bellevue? And, and... <laughs> yeah. Yep. After the Aladdin scene shows. Wow. He, uh, you know, he dubbed us. He's the one that dubbed us the Sigma kids. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, he'd be at shows and he would look out in the audience and say, where are my Sigma kids? And he'd, you know, oh, there you are. And he'd point and wave and ask us questions. And yeah. Wow. But. Do you keep yeah. in touch with your, your fellow Sigma kids? Um, I still talk to Marla and Leslie and Linda and Barbara. And probably it i see lenny on very rare occasions uh two have passed away um and there are a couple i have no idea where they are um there were 10 of us uh, <clears throat> no but who i'm happy that we all keep in touch with is we still are in touch with carlos and robin i think they just celebrated their, their 50th right yeah, their 50th anniversary. And, you know, when I'm around them still, they're in they're So they were married for whatever it was, three years, four, maybe four, when we met them. And they were so in love then. And they're that much in love and more now. Aww. They just, oh, they're, they're, it's such an inspiration to me to see them interact with one another because they they just they're amazing together they really are i'd love to see him play live i've never had the pleasure his guitar playing always blew me away i just i don't understand how one person can have that much of a groove yeah he's he's very talented he just and i think it's because of the way he lives his life he's just such a humble wonderful, open, accepting human being. Um, and I think because of how he's lived his life, he's able to, I don't even know words to use to describe him. He just, he's an amazing human being. I'm so incredibly proud to call him my friend. There's a, there's a, as somebody who just knows him through his his work and his interviews, there's a there's a gentleness and a, a stillness and a zenness to him that that really exactly that, that yeah. you, just comes off of him and you you feel yep. that yeah yeah oh. yeah he's he's a pretty special they both are they're very very special people. Well, I'm gonna say the same about you. Oh my God, <laughs> thank you for. Being this open and not only taking the time, but just trusting me and, you know, I, I, cause I, I know what that takes. I know how 
personal and special these figures are to us, which is part of the reason why I wanted to do this project in the first place. And I thank you for, for trusting me and talking to me and uh, my pleasure. Oh, just being so generous in every way a human can be generous. It's, it's been such a joy. I, I was <laughs> getting emotional at many, many points while listening because it just, it, it makes me so happy that you had that experience and that, that, and you appreciated it. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like a lot of people's like, yeah, cool. I met a rock star. Oh, I met one of my favorite. It's like, it's no, no, oh, no, 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 it, no, no. It had such a profound effect on me. Just seeing him the first time had such a profound effect on me. Um, yeah. It, it just, I mean, he, he truly was my mentor. He and my mom were the two most important people in my life. I'm so glad. So, I'm so glad yeah. that you had that. I'm so glad that he was always as gracious as he was because he didn't have to be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, a lot of a lot of um people in his position aren't. And he was just never anything but wonderful to us. Off the record is a production of iHeartRadio. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.